Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Seated. Well, happy Mother's Day again. I was, I was thinking when you say that to a mom, it's really congratulatory. You're, you're congratulating her on all that she's done to be a mom, which, which is a lot. When you say that, though, to a dad, it's really a prayer because there's nothing worse than an unhappy Mother's Day. Well, happy Mother's Day again. We're real thankful. We are real thankful for our moms. But I wonder if you've noticed, if you've ever noticed the irony that's wrapped up in motherhood. Here's just a, a few examples of, again, the irony wrapped up in motherhood. Motherhood is defined by nurture. But sometimes, as a mother, you carry that out by being fierce. Think about defending your kid on the playground or something like that. Well, again, motherhood requires so much energy. But it's precisely motherhood that strips you of your sleep. As a mother, you've, you've got to shout. Another one. As a mother, you've got to shout to get the kids to be quiet. But when it's quiet, you end up shouting, asking them why it's so quiet. And just another example, lastly, the irony of motherhood is seen in the fact that it is one of the most valuable jobs on earth, and yet it's one of the only ones you never see a paycheck for. A lot of irony wrapped up in motherhood. Likewise, we've seen in this series on the Gospel of John that there's a lot of irony wrapped up with Jesus, but none so much in this Gospel of John than in those final hours leading up to the cross. We're picking up the story in John chapter 18 today where we've, we've been looking at Jesus' final week, most recently at Jesus' final night, and have just come to the cusp of those final hours. And we're going to see today that irony That irony that surrounded Jesus reaches its climax. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there again to John 18. But before we dive in, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask today that you would give us eyes to see. That not all during those final hours of Jesus' life was as it may have appeared. I pray that we would be able to see the irony of it all. That on his way to the cross, Jesus was ascending his throne. That dying, he was providing life. And that he did it for us who ourselves, apart from him, deserve to die. I pray we'd see it. Not only see it, but that we'd be changed by it. In the powerful name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Irony is a rhetorical device or a a literary technique 
in which what appears on the surface differs from and accentuates what is in fact the case. It's when the apparent meaning conceals and many times even contradicts the actual meaning. It's like the picture floating around the, in, the internet of a can of Rustoleum. Is everybody familiar with Rustoleum? For those who aren't, Rustoleum is a paint that's meant to stop rust. It's meant to stop the oxidation process that wears away at metal. But in this picture, this can of Rustoleum is ironically rusted shut. And the caption beneath reads, the only one he couldn't help was himself. <laughs> Irony is when what, a, what appears on the surface conceals or even contradicts something else that is in fact the case. The term actually comes from the theater in ancient Greece in which the iron was one of the standard characters in any story with a happy ending. The iron was the one who turned out, in the end, to be the hero. But did so not by trampling upon their opponents, but by allowing themselves to be trampled on. This is the irony embodied in the iron, that, that through defeat comes triumph through humility, exaltation, that while on the surface all looks lost, in reality their downfall is the pathway to victory. And the only question is whether the audience would have the eyes to see that there was more to the story than may at first appear. Well, as we step back into the Gospel of John and pick up this story in those final hours before the cross, we're going to see today that, that Jesus is the iron to which all others before and all others since point. That Jesus changes defeat when it ironically proves to be the pathway to triumph. And we're going to see it in the irony of his arrest, the irony of his interrogation, and the irony of Jesus' judgment. His arrest, his interrogation, and Jesus' judgment. First, in the irony of his arrest. And here I'm thinking primarily of the contrast between those who came to arrest Jesus and the one they came to arrest. We're told in verse 1 that after praying, Jesus goes out of the city with his disciples across the, the brook Kidron and, and into a garden. And that Judas knew the place because it was a frequent gathering spot for Jesus and his disciples. So, verse 3, Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Because apparently they were expecting a fight. 
But an important detail that, that, that you may miss is, is that this isn't just Judas and a handful of soldiers, or Judas and a hundred or so soldiers, but Judas and the religious officials and upwards of a thousand soldiers. That's what that word band means, when it says a band of soldiers, upwards of a thousand soldiers. And it's important for at least two reasons. It suggests that they were afraid of something with lanterns and torches and weapons. And because Jesus didn't flee, that he was afraid of nothing. thousand soldiers coming in the night, a thousand soldiers with lanterns burning bright, yet there he stood, not a single fear, waiting, watching a thousand soldiers drawing near. There's plenty of opportunity to get away with a mob like that coming your direction, but the one they were coming to get stands waiting for them. And yet the irony is brought to a head in what happens next. Verse 4 says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? See, it's Jesus who asks the question. And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. But notice, they never get to ask a question of their own. So what Jesus says next isn't an answer to a question they never get to ask. It's actually a clarification to the answer they just gave him. Whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. Or how it ought to be translated simply, I am. Imagine that's in a footnote in most of your Bibles. Because that's actually what Jesus says. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth? Don't you mean the great I am? You see, it's the last time in this gospel that Jesus takes on himself a name that's only ever taken in the Bible by God. A name God first took when, when way back when he promised to, to free his people from captivity to their captors. Do you remember the story? Calling himself the great I am. As in I am the one who will free you. And I am the one who can do it. And here's Jesus. The one being sought asking whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. You mean, don't you, the great I am. As if to say to his captors, don't you realize that I'm the one who came to set the captives free? And all they can do is bow down before him. It's almost comical. He says, I am, and, and they, verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am he, or I am, they drew back and fell to the ground, and that's the picture of bowing down in worship. A thousand soldiers, all the religious officials, and Judas himself, who was standing near. Why? Because when God reveals who he is, and no less the Son of God after him, all fall and worship. Whether followers or foes, all fall and worship. 
The irony of this arrest, though, isn't just that on that night with lanterns and torches and and weapons, they came to capture the one who came to set the captive free. But that in fact, it was through his captivity that such freedom would be found. It's at this point that Jesus again says in verse 7, whom do you seek? And they say again, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, that I am. So, he says, if you seek me, let these men go. Why? Because it says, this was to fulfill the word he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Because it's a picture of something bigger, that in his own capture, he would set the captive free. And we see that even more in what happens next. It says in verse 10, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Now, I don't know how that happened. I don't know how you cut off somebody's ear and not nick their shoulder on the way down or something like that. But Peter does this, and and we're told that the servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This, This cup though, is the cup of wrath that God has stored up to pour out on all who pour out wrath on others. It is not a cup that is meant for Jesus. It's a cup that's meant for those of us like Peter, who even in the name of Jesus pour out wrath on others. Jesus says, shall I not drink it? This cup mentioned all over the Psalms, all over the prophets. And yet here's Jesus, fully aware, fully in control, and fully innocent. Knowing full well what's about to happen to him and that he will fully drink that cup himself. So that not one will be lost. Because like it or not, all of us are among the ones that cup was meant for. Each of us, in our own way, a lot like Peter with his sword, pouring out wrath on others, even in our protection of Jesus. But in Jesus, who allowed himself to be captured, we find our hope that we, who are helplessly captive, to our own sin, to the cup that goes with that, that we are finally set free. How ironic. There's even a hint here that the irony of this arrest goes further still. And it's between those parentheses about the guy who got his ear cut off, that unfortunate guy. Malchus, right? Well, it's interesting that in other gospel accounts of this event, this servant is left unnamed. And there's really only one reason why someone unnamed in another gospel would show up named in this one, especially if that character is unknown anywhere else in history. And that's if this Malchus, after the events of that night, became himself captivated by the one he came to capture. See, as far as I can tell, Malchus 
became a believer in Jesus. A witness in the early church as one who who came there that night to capture Jesus, but who found himself captivated so that through his captivity, not only would he set the captives free, but set his captors free as well. How ironic. First, the irony of his arrest. But the irony extends second to Jesus in interrogation. And here the irony comes out as the interrogation of Jesus is sandwiched between two accounts reporting the interrogation of Peter. And the irony is in the contrast. But where Jesus is about to be interrogated by the religious leaders, big old burly Peter is going to be interrogated by servants and servant girls. Let me pick up the story in verse 15. It says, Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Servant girl at the door said to Peter, Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Because presumably the other disciple had already made himself known. So Peter's asked, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? To which Peter says, I am not. We're told of a charcoal fire around which Peter warmed himself. But echoing in our ears ought to be this declaration, I am not. Because it's such a stark contrast to what we just moments before heard when Jesus declared himself to be I am. And while Peter is hiding his identity, look at what Jesus is doing. It says in verse 19 that the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And where Peter had had just in the, the garden struck a servant of the high priest... Now a servant of the high priest strikes Jesus. And meanwhile, out in the courtyard, Peter denies the I am again, saying, I am not. And then once more before the rooster crows. Do you see the irony? The one we need the most is the one we deny. The one we continue to deny, just like Peter. As the rock band Thrice put it, from my lips lies like poison spilled, the the sound of prophecy fulfilled. And then I met your eyes and I remember everything. And something in me dies the night that I betrayed my king. 
Because the one we need is the one we deny. Cowering in the crowds, hiding behind servants and servant girls. But the need we have because we deny him is a need even more so that he will not deny himself. So in the end, even more than thrice, it's something like Johann Sebastian Bach put when he said, for the bonds of my sins, my Savior they did bind. It's in the one I deny that my help can I find. How ironic The irony of the arrest, the irony of the interrogation, finally, the irony of Jesus' judgment. And I can't touch on everything here, but, but let me point out a few things between chapter 18, verse 28, and chapter 19, verse 16. After his interrogation, Jesus is brought to Pilate because we're told the religious leaders didn't have the right to, to, to put anyone to death under Roman rule. And yet, coming to Pilate, they're not able to come into his headquarters because because that would render them unfit to celebrate their religious feast. And that's ironic in itself because that religious feast was actually looking forward to Jesus. That's why God put the Passover in place as a precursor and to make sense of what he was doing, what he was about to do with his son. Yet the irony of Jesus' judgment comes out most as Pilate, the one who's supposed to be judging Jesus, is depicted, again, almost comically, as going in and out between the Jews and Jesus over and over and over again. You get the feeling he can't figure out what to do because Pilate tells the religious leaders multiple times, I find no guilt in him. But over and over and over again, he's scared back inside to cross-examine Jesus once more. Seven times, back and forth, unable to make up his mind. Because Pilate is a pragmatist. And it comes out in verse 18, 38, when he replies to something Jesus says with the question, what is truth? Jesus just told him that he was born, came into the world to bear witness to the truth. And Pilate replies, what is truth? But in that moment, it's not that Pilate is doubting that there's a thing, that there's such a thing as truth. It's that Pilate is doubting whether the truth has anything to do with himself. See, Pilate is a pragmatist. He's concerned only for himself, his success, his significance, his security, and saving his own skin. And even though he'll three times declare Jesus innocent, he still treats him like he's guilty, mocks him as royalty, and then reproves him like a rebel, has him crowned with thorns, Hailed with fists and ultimately crucified. 
Because Pilate is a pragmatist. He's not concerned with what's right. He's only concerned with what works. And mostly, what works for him. And yet the irony is that in the end, what's right is the only thing that works. If you care about success and significance and security in its most meaningful sense, if you care about saving your own skin, there's only one way to do that, and it's by hailing Jesus as the king that he is. It's only if Jesus does what only Jesus can. Because he's the only one who can get you what you want and get you what you were made for. See, it's not that our sights are are ever too high. It's that they're not set high enough. It's like Lewis said, we're we're, we're contenting ourselves with mud pies in the slum when, when what's on offer in Jesus is a holiday at the sea. We're aiming at earth where we get nothing instead of at heaven where we get earth thrown in. But the irony goes further still because Jesus does it. He does it. He gets us what we want. He gets us what we need, not in spite of the cross, but through it. See, though they were mocking him, through that he was making a way. Because in the end, Jesus is the hero. And the one who is judged is in fact the judge himself. The one who is interrogated is in fact the one who interrogates and will interrogate everyone else. And the one arrested is in in fact the one whose mere presence arrests and will someday arrest all who see him. He is the one who triumphs, not by trampling over his opponents, but by allowing them to trample on him, who through defeat secures success, through humility, achieves exaltation who while on the surface all looks lost in reality through suffering paves the pathway to victory and the only question is whether we today have the eyes to see that there was in those final hours more to the story than may at first appear How ironic. If you haven't seen the irony before, my prayer, my hope for you today is that you would do just that, that you would see it. And if you have and have gone so far as to put your faith and trust and hope in Jesus, in this iron to which all others before and all others since point, Let's just be real for a moment. Because we may have accepted the irony of the gospel, this account of Jesus back then, but we so often fail to see that this irony is one we're called to reflect in our day.
today, today, that through the mockery of your coworkers, someone may come to Christ. That by counting defeat in the world's eyes as nothing, your grip on the world is actually loosened. And you're free to then grasp what matters most. That when the world thinks you're a fool, you've actually found the only wisdom there is. Stories told of of and by a a Christian uh, professor in the oldest Islamic university in Malaysia who sat through a a lecture by one of Islam's foremost uh, defenders, a guy by the name of Ahmed Didat. And Didat was in his normal form lashing out and and talking of Christianity as, as unlivable. And at the end of this lecture, the Christian raised his hand in the midst of this auditorium and said, Sir, why is it that you say my faith is unlivable? To which Didot invited the man on stage, reeled back, and slapped him across the face as hard as he could. And while the man stood there trembling, D-Dot said, now turn the other cheek. The man in the midst of the pain, in that moment looking to God, and found the strength to turn. D-Dot said, we can do this quicker. Take off your shirt. Give it to me. The man did. To which Didot said, and your trousers, you're supposed to give me your trousers too. The man turned to the audience and apologized for what he was about to do, but in the end did it, and stood there in the shame of his underwear, and went back to his office weeping from the pain, but in his office, thanking God that he had had the strength to stand when there was a knock at the door. And when he opened it, a line of Muslim students standing, waiting to beg his forgiveness for what had just happened. As irons today, pray that we would ever point back to the apparent defeat of the iron who hung on the cross and point forward to his return when the irony will be seen for what it is and then we will be invited to reign with our rightful king forevermore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, pray wherever we are that we would see Jesus afresh today. I pray as we 
inch ever closer to the moment he will hung, he will hang on that tree. That we would see him for who he is, but see more than at first may have appeared. Pray we would see the irony and even today reflect that in our own lives. As we look forward to the day, the irony will be seen for what it is. And Jesus will reign forevermore. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.